Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Previously on My Kid Could Draft a Better Constitution, Honey Boo Boo withdrew as the delegate from Georgia and a motion failed to give the Kardashian family a permanent seat on the Supreme Court. Tonight, the delegates enter their 17th week of being locked in the Philadelphia Cream Cheese Resort and Conference Center while they try to write a new founding document. Tempers are starting to flare. On tonight's episode, Gary Busey says, We need a new Second Amendment, man. It should say that everybody has to own at least one gun, even kids. And Tori Spelling wants to know, Why is there nothing in this document about weddings and, you know, champagne cocktails? And how to on your wedding night. But tonight's biggest challenge comes from the Florida delegation, where Delegate Vanilla Ice is pressing for more... Stop! What's wrong? All of this, everything. Yes, our Constitution is flawed, but you can't fix it with a reality show full of third-rate celebrities and cheap stunts, unfounded premises, and grandiose statements that can't be fact-checked. Isn't that how we elect our president? Just that one time. We're not going to make it a habit. Now clear out of here. Okay, if you insist. Can I just ask, was Jenny McCarthy's vaccine amendment ever going to pass? That's exactly the kind of thing you will never know. Fine. Today on the show, are there maybe some better ways to fix the Constitution? Should we amend it more often? And now, the man who argued before the Supreme Court for the right to be fabulous, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, it was Bruno versus Karl Lagerfeld, actually, uh, I argued in that case. So, yeah, we could maybe make a constitution through a reality show that was suggested on social media today by Josh Dobbin. Um, there's lots of ways you can make a constitution. Probably the cutest attempt came in 2013. The cutest one that I know, anyway, came in 2013 in Iceland, where they really did try to sort of put together uh, a, like a representative group of people from Iceland. I don't know, you know how representative that would be to us uh, to pass a new constitution. That was going to be crowdsourced. There were 950 quasi randomly sampled citizens who were gathered for a one day national forum. And then they they pared down to 10 women and 15 men uh, to be drafters. And they were from a wide range of professors, including a farmer, pastor, filmmaker, student, art museum director. Uh, they opened up the process through social media. They got 3,600 comments. And they even passed the thing with two thirds of the voters uh, in, in a referendum. And then it didn't make it through Parliament. But so that's one way you could do it. it. Didn't so that's not the Constitution of Iceland yet. So, but that's you know that's how you could have a really open process that involves as many kinds of people and as many people as possible. The Constitution we have, I want to reiterate, was drafted in secret by 55 white men for the sake of diversity. Two of them were Catholics. But other than that, there was no, but there were, they were all white men. There were no women, no minorities, uh, no real consideration. And, and I might add, it was ratified by essentially the same kinds of people. In fact, there was a property requirement, I think, piled on top of that. So in terms of who drafted this constitution, a bunch of men, white men meeting in secret, um, way back a long time ago. Uh, before there was, like, Facebook. Uh, and then it was ratified by a bunch of white men. You know, I mean, like, nobody else got to vote on this whole thing. So that raises some questions. Like, you know, 
is this really the best possible constitution that we could have? It is, does it deserve the kind of reverence that we heap upon it? Uh, and that's what we're going to talk about today with Akhil Reed Amar. He's joining us from the Yale Studios, Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University, and the author of several books, including The Constitution Today, Timeless Lessons for the Issues of Our Era, and America's Unwritten Constitution, The Precedents and Principles We Live By. Also joining us by phone from Austin, Texas, is Sanford Levinson, a Professor of Law and Government at the University of Texas, Austin, and a v- visiting professor of law at Harvard. He's the author of several books also, including Our Undemocratic Constitution, Where the Constitution Goes Wrong, and How We the People Can Correct It, and most recently, An Argument Open to All, uh, Reading the Federalist in the 21st Century. I want to say that I'm such uh, a pathetic little geek that when Bitsy Kaplan told me that uh, Sanford Levison was going to be on, I went, you mean the guy from Balkanization? Um, so that's how little life I have. Uh, but he's actually, he does contribute to this very prestigious blog, as I think does Akhil Reed Amar, too, uh, called Balkanization. All right. So uh, let's begin our conversation. Welcome to both of our guests. Um, and, and I guess I, I want to start here. Um, Akhil Reed Amar, I'm going to start with you. Um, my friend uh, Hugh McGill, who used to be the dean at the UConn Law School, uh, says that a reasonably intelligent Martian uh, arriving in the United States in 2016 and being handed a copy of our Constitution and then watching the way the government works uh, for, say, a year would be puzzled as to what one thing had to do with the other, uh, that there are lots of ways in which uh, we have this fabulous uh, living document that we don't even really necessarily follow it. Uh, I mean, how fair an assessment is that? How, how true is it that we do everything the way it's spelled out in the Constitution, assuming that it is spelled out in the Constitution? It's half true. Uh, we do a lot more things than the Constitution says, um, but almost never less. Uh, so there are two senators for every state, and uh, we elect people for the House every two years, and senators every six staggered, and and uh, a president every four through this weird um, mechanism um, uh, that's not a direct election in keeping with the Constitution as amended. Uh, the Constitution itself in its text says in the Ninth Amendment that they're, not all the rights are enumerated and that's actually our practice. We have more rights than are listed in the Constitution, but I would say almost never less. That was not true if the Martian had come in 1936. The, the Martian um, would have been right to be perplexed because the Constitution says the right to vote and there was massive malapportionment uh, in the land and the Constitution said racial equality and that wasn't being done in 1936 when there was apartheid and the Constitution said free speech and courts weren't doing that and the Constitution actually says the Bill of Rights applies against the states thanks to an amendment called the 14th Amendment and and that wasn't actually our practice. So if the Martian, it said religious equality and yet there was sectarian prayer in the public school. So if the Martian had arrived in 1936, there was a big disconnect between what the Constitution as amended uh, said and what was being done. But today, uh, I would argue that there's a much greater synchronization between the text and our practices. And that's a, uh, a happenstance. It hasn't always been true in American history, but it's actually a happy happenstance. 
Um, Sandy Levinson, you may want to have your own conversation with this Martian, and I want to let you do it. But before you do that, um, one thing that the Martian might be doing is looking at the Constitution and saying, you know, it says here um, how you guys can start a war, like the circumstances under which you can go to war. But it seems like you guys have wars all the time. And and you don't do that. It's like you can have a war anytime you want. So would that be maybe an example of how we're not reading the manual and doing what we're supposed to do? Um, yeah, I would say so. Now, um, first of all, I want to say I by and large agree with what Akil said. Um, and even something like Declaration of War Clause, for better and very definitely for worse, uh, there's real debate among lawyers as to what it means to declare war as against making war. I would be one of those people, and I think Akil probably would agree, who would say that it would truly shock most of the people who drafted the Constitution to realize how much power is now in the hands of the president that they assumed that Congress would play a more active and ultimately cautionary role in going to war than turns out to be the case. Yeah, I mean, Gil, maybe you want to respond to that, too. Uh, what about the war thing? Well, Sandy told you um, it doesn't say start or make. It says declare, declare and declaring okay. war is very different than waging it. It actually explicitly says that states even um, without any sort of congressional action can repel um, uh, uh, invasions when they're actually invaded. Uh, Sandy is absolutely right that the f uh, powers of the president and the federal government in general um, today, the military powers are awesome. Um, that's in part because of changes of technology. Um, it's also, frankly, though, in part because Congress has created a huge military-industrial complex, and, and no one forced Congress to do it. Congress uh, reauthorizes that with massive military expenditures every two years as per the Constitution. So um, I would, with respect, tell your Martian to you know, consult his Martian English dictionary and, and pay attention to that word declare, which is not the same as the word make. All right. So fair enough. So uh, here's this document. It's uh, Sandy Levinson. This is a pretty old document. Uh, it's been amended, I think, 27 times. I think you have to knock out the one that declares prohibition and then the one that ends prohibition. That's kind of a wash item. OK, so we're down to 25. So then you got the Bill of Rights, but that's kind of Constitution 2.0. Right. It's just, you know, so now so now we've got like a much smaller group. We've got 15 amendments. Three of them were kind of the fruits of the Civil War. Now it's getting even smaller. This is a document that's been around a long time. It was debated on and ratified by white men who, I'll steal another Hugh McGill joke, whose living conditions might have been closer to the people of ancient Rome than they were to the era of Mark Zuckerberg and Miley Cyrus. Really, does it need to be changed so rarely and so little? Is it really such a great thing that we hardly ever amend it? Well, for me, as I'm sure you're aware, um, my answer is is very easy. I think that the Constitution needs greater amendment. And even more than that, I think that the real scandal is how little serious discussion the question that you've just asked gets. It may be that after a constitutional convention, which I would like, 
we would come to the conclusion that, you know, the Constitution really is working pretty well. We don't need any amendments, or maybe we need a few tweaking amendments, but nothing more than that. I would disagree, but at least I would have the satisfaction of knowing that the issues have really been discussed and the decisions made would be made after what Publius and Federalist Number 1 called reflection and choice. What really drives me up the wall is how little reflection and choice there is about the Constitution. Instead, it's been replaced by what I think is too often a mindless veneration that really refuses to address even the possibility that the Constitution might be in need of significant reform. I don't believe that I have all the answers. I have no doubt that if we had a convention, I would change my mind on certain things, just as I would hope that I could change the mind of people who would walk into a convention disagreeing with me. But the point is that we're not having this national conversation. Sandy, is part of the problem also that some of the dysfunction that arises from the current state of the Constitution or how it's been interpreted is also the reason we can't change it? In other words, I, you know, I've read enough of your writings to know that you feel as though, in many respects, people aren't fully represented, that money you know, uh, plays, I mean, this isn't a new idea, but that money plays a bigger, bigger role than citizen participation, at least on, you know, on a representative basis, that, that even if the people really did want an amendment, it might be really hard for them to get it because the system isn't really set up for the people to be able to immediately get what they want in the form of legislation or other kinds of change. Oh, this is undoubtedly true. Um, One of the, one really, really important article that Akil wrote a number of years ago, I think it's now, you know, 20, 25 years ago, and I don't know to what extent he still agrees with his earlier article, But in that article, he argues very eloquently that there is a right of we the people kind of directly through a referendum. Think of California, if you want to, to change the Constitution, rather than necessarily go through the Byzantine and near impossible hurdles that Article 5 of the Constitution sets up the constitutional amendment. One of the really terrible things about the Constitution, um, and on some days I think it's the worst single aspect of the U.S. Constitution, is that Article 5 makes it so difficult as a practical matter to change the Constitution that there is tremendous psychological incentive to believe that it doesn't need changing, because to talk about constitutional amendment is a little bit like wandering into Dante's hell and seeing a sign saying, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Because generally speaking, to propose amendment of anything 
truly significant will lead to the reasonable response. You can't really be serious in believing that you can get two-thirds of each House of Congress, and even if you got two-thirds of each House of Congress, that you could get then get 38 of the 50 states um, to agree to anything significant. And this is a really, really deep and serious problem. If you look not only at constitutions around the world, but also at every single one of the other 50 American state constitutions, you discover with the partial exception of a couple of state constitutions, that they're all easier to amend than the U.S. Constitution. It's often used as a criticism of state constitutions that they're amended so often. What other people see as a bug, I see as a feature, because what this means is that state constitutions can be updated It also is a reflection of the fact that very few people's hearts beat faster when they think of their state constitution. They look at their state constitution. Speak for yourself, Sandy. My heart heart goes for us today. Okay, it's serving us well. Let's change it. All right. I want to first of all speak for yourself. My heart goes pity pat when I think of the Connecticut State uh, Constitution. But Akil, so Sandy's uh, shoved a lot of checkers around there on the checkerboard, uh, including the possibility that you either do or don't agree with yourself. Uh, So I don't know what you want to take first. Although you know, the larger question is, you know, is the Constitution too easy to amend or too hard to amend? Yeah, so I've changed my mind. It's Stanley is so young at heart. I love his um, I- idealism. But when I was young and foolish, I was young and foolish. Let me tell you why I've changed my mind. First, um, Sandy says, and, and so let's just look at data because there are things that I learned. So when I was young, I thought, as you did, that there, uh, the Constitution, the, its enactment wasn't so democratic. What you said, with due respect, Colin, isn't correct. In New York, there were no property qualifications for ratifying the Constitution. All single adult males got to vote. Mm-hmm. No race tests, no literacy tests, no property qualifications, no religious tests. And that was radical for the time. Those weren't the ordinary rules, but those were the rules in New York. Um, and in eight of the 13 states, ordinary property qualifications were lowered or eliminated compared to what they ordinarily were when the Constitution was ratified. I didn't know that back then. Now, that still is all male and, 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 and what about slaves and all the rest. And I think I undervalued the significance of all the amendments. Maybe there are only 15 if you disregard, um, the, if you count the Bill of Rights as the original um, uh, Constitution. And, but boy, what a set of 15, getting rid of slavery, um, enfranchising women, poll tax, disenfran- uh, getting rid of poll tax, disenfranchisement, direct election of senators. So some pretty amazing and democratic stuff um, and no bad amendments. Um, except you can say prohibition canceled out, but amendments um, have in general added to liberty and equality, whereas if you look at state constitutions or things that are too easy to amend, you know, two steps forward, three steps back, 
at the amendment level. In my lifetime, since I was a young man, all sorts of uh, amendment ideas have failed because the Article 5 bars are, and these were bad ideas, like putting in the Constitution uh, marriage is one man, one woman, which a lot of states did, but the feds didn't, even though George W. Bush pushed it. But he couldn't get two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate. Um, um, a bad amendment ideas like let's, pr- let's criminalize flag burning. Let's make exceptions to the First Amendment of an anti-liberal, anti-libertarian sort, which got majorities in the House and Senate, but not two-thirds. And I'm glad. Now, now that I think about it some more, here's what I say. Yeah, uh, um, uh, state constitutions are much easier to amend, and Sandy is right. Most people don't thrill to their state constitutions. I've been here for 40 years in Connecticut. I've never even read the Connecticut Constitution, and I'm a con law guy who actually specializes in state constitutions. State constitutions across the board do not have the respect that the federal one does. I'm from California. We had a lot of good amendments but a lot of bad ones, and I'm really glad that the federal constitution sets a firm floor. I like state constitutions being easy to amend precisely because there's a safety net called the federal constitution that limits the craziness that Texas or California uh, or, or Wyoming or any other state can do. We have secure federal rights in the 14th Amendment that can't be messed with by, by, by states. So I, I like the idea of federal constitution with a high safety net, hard to change, um, that makes it difficult to get rid of these really good rights that we have. Maybe hard to add some new ones, but, but, um, but it protects us against um, a certain flightiness that we actually see at states. Uh, constitutions around the world yeah, they're easy to amend, and, and even for all our problems, even today, even this week, I'll say ours is better than most of the rest of the world's. Um, so I'd, I'd rather have ours. And one final thing that you said, Colin, mm. you said that the, uh, the Founders' Constitution was closer to um, Rome than it was to Zuckerberg, that is ancient Rome. No. I said they're con- the framers' conditions of living. Yes. Well, let me tell you what they actually did. They put the Constitution to a vote up and down a continent, and that um, they crowdsourced it from the beginning. And the first thing people said is, dudes, you forgot the rights. That's what give us the Bill of Rights. That's Wikipedia avant la lettre. That's actually the constitutionalization. That's a Zuckerberg-like brilliant idea about crowdsourcing. <laughs> Rome never did anything like that. They never actually let everyone vote. Now, you can say only white men and they had slavery. I get that. That's why you have to add the Reconstruction Amendments and Women's Suffrage Amendment and in my lifetime, Anti-Poll Tax Amendment. And you add all those together because the Constitution isn't just the framing. And almost all the amendments have been good ones. Almost none have been bad. And now the older Amar says, oh, the young Amar, he didn't understand all of that. That Yes, we set a bar to amendment that's high, but it's screened out a lot bad idea. So when I was young, I said, oh, things could be so much better. Now I'm old and cranky. And I say, oh, yeah, but they could be a lot worse. I don't know, Sandy. I think I like young Amar better. And, um, and, 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 and <laughs> So does Sandy. Yeah. And so, Sandy, we should talk about like who does get to amend the Constitution. And we know who gets to amend the Constitution. It's called the Supreme Court. They get to do it all the time. They don't call it amending the Constitution. But you've got these nine people who aren't elected. They're the least representative uh, branch of government. Uh, and th- essentially what they're doing, partly because it's so hard for the people to amend the Constitution, is they're just constantly saying it means something something other than what it meant 20 years ago, that they've become, they've got to be more powerful today than those framers back then ever dreamed. I don't know. What's your response to that? I think what you say is true, but I also think that in a certain sense, with respect, it's beside the point. Where I most 
disagree with the keel. Um, and I should say, for the benefit of your listeners, that Akil and I are not only very, very close friends, but we're also co-editors of a case book on constitutional law. Thanks for um, working that, that plug, I Sandy. That's good. With Akil <laughs> and agree in preferring the younger Akil to the older Akil is that, like most people, he fixates on one important aspect of the Constitution, which is rights provisions, and tends basically to ignore the structural aspects of the Constitution, including such things as the as bicameralism, what I regard as the indefensible Senate. Um, Akio has talked about the Electoral College. Uh, he doesn't really talk very much about the presidential veto, which I think is more important, actually, in many ways than judicial review. Um, and it's those features of the Constitution that I think are crippling us as a country. Uh, and the Supreme Court has nothing to say of interest with regard to any of these things. What the Supreme Court does is to change um, on occasion our notion of rights. And I agree with Akil that it is important when talking about the freedom of states to amend their constitutions. It is important to say, you know, there is a floor that prevents a state from reinstating slavery or uh, establishing itself as a Christian state. And I think this is important. Uh, you and I agree about that. But if your main concern is about protecting rights, then I would say let's look at the German Constitution, because one of the things that's really interesting about the German Constitution is that it has a so-called eternity clause that says, in effect, don't even think of amending the Constitution with regard to certain sorts of absolutely fundamental rights touching on human dignity. But with regard to other aspects of the Constitution, they leave those open to amendment. So if add the Constitutional Convention, I would like. And if Akil wanted to say, you know, the rights provisions are so important that we shouldn't even allow the possibility of amendment. Let's not even say that we could reinstate slavery if only two-thirds of each House of Congress and then three-quarters of the states agreed to do that. Let's put in the Constitution, you can never do it. You can never establish a church. Etc. I'd say great. All right, Sandy, I'm, I'm just going to stop you I there. I, I, Sandy, i got to get to a break here. Sandy, parts. Sandy, i got to get to a break here, or Betsy Kaplan will have all of our heads. Um, so uh, hold that thought. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll come back. I took a little risk Send lawyers, guns, and money Dead
Our Constitution is a remarkable, beautiful gift. But it's really just a piece of parchment. It has no power on its own. We, the people, give it power. We, the people, give it meaning with our participation and with the choices that we make and the alliances that we forge, whether or not we stand up for our freedoms, whether or not we respect and enforce the rule of law. All right. I don't know who that guy was, but he sounds very inspiring to me. Uh, joining us today to talk about the Constitution, two of America's foremost experts on the Constitution, Akhil Reed Amar, Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University, uh, and Sanford Levinson, Professor of Law and Government at the University of Texas at Austin, and a visiting professor of law at Harvard. So... Um, so much to say here. Uh, uh, Akhil, I'm going to begin with you. Sandy, as we wound down the, the last segment in a rare uh, burst of optimism, said that the uh, at least we have constitution and constitutional interpretation, if I understand what he said, provide certain floors below we, with which we cannot sink. Uh, we're not going to reinstitute uh, slavery or declare ourselves a Christian uh, nation. Uh, I don't know. You might want to have those floors checked before Friday. Make sure they're uh, totally solid. There's some people coming in here who may not, uh, including the the guy in charge who may not really respect these floors and kind of think that, I mean, Donald Trump's, let's say the name of the orange elephant in the room, you know, he, he seems like a guy who thinks he can do a lot of things with a wave of his hand. Uh, are we headed for some real tests uh, of what the Constitution really does say and whether Sandy's floors uh, are fully waxed and hardened? Well, um, that's one of the reasons I don't want to make it too easy to amend the Constitution because if we had a, um, a federal constitution that was like state constitutions in all respects, then we could, uh, uh, by simple and narrow majorities, get rid of um, a religious equality or even um, a, a free speech. So, so he's not going to be able to amend the Constitution, he and his allies, because even though they control the House and the Senate uh, and they will control the Supreme Court and the presidency, they don't have two-thirds majorities in the House. They don't have two-thirds majorities in the Senate. Uh, they control most of the states. Uh, the Republicans do, Trump and his allies, the, the other Republicans of uh, uh, whatever color. Um, but they don't have um, three-quarters of the states. And that's what you need for a constitutional amendment. And uh, and as long as the words continue to mean something, and I think they do mean something, I think we, um, Obama is right that we um, uh, invest ourselves in the Constitution um, and we give of ourselves to the document, but we also draw meaning from its words, and its words are pretty clear on speech and religion, and and um, uh, and that's a good thing. Sandy is more of a fan, perhaps, of parliamentary systems. Uh, I'm not so sure that they're um, clearly better. They might not be worse, but um, but here's one thing of uh, since Sandy mentioned earlier the structure con uh, structural constitution bicameralism and things like that. We've got 50 states, and the state constitutions are easy to amend. 
but 49 of them have bicameral legislatures. All 50 of them have a governor who has a veto pen. And maybe not that's not the only way you can have a system, but it turns out to be one way, kind of the American way. And, and, and to repeat, state constitutions are easy to amend, and yet we've created, in effect, a presidential bicameral system in, in every state except Nebraska, where you've got a little governor who looks like a president, four-year terms typically, veto pen, pardon pen, bicameral legislature. That's not the only way to do democracy. It's not how they do it in Britain or Italy um, or, or Germany um, or, or Israel, but it, it is one way and a pretty workable way. And uh, so, so I think our system actually, if you look at the state constitutions, which Sandy invites us to do, state constitutions actually ringingly affirm some of the things that he doesn't love so much, like um, uh, vetoes and presidentialism. All right. I want, before we get to that, and I want to, first of all, uh, we heard from the uh, current renter. Uh, let's hear from the people who are moving in uh, at the end of this week. The Constitution was set up with senators and congressmen, and you're supposed to work and make deals. Do you see the Constitution? And two parties, and it could be more than two parties, but two parties. Do you see the Constitution as a living, breathing document that, or do you see it as something set in stone from long ago? I I see the the Constitution as set in stone. I see it as one of the great documents of all time. I also see it as something that says you've got to sit down and make deals. I know that's right there in the Constitution somewhere, uh, Sandy Levinson. The deal-making clause. So I don't know. First of all, Sandy Levinson, are you a little scared? I mean, this is a guy who comes in, and and things are what he says they are until somebody can stop him or prove him wrong. He doesn't have a lot of experience with that. Uh, Is there any particular reason to suppose that he'll follow the rules or even observe the position of the floors? Let me say two things. First of all, I'm terrified of Donald Trump. Secondly, I think his understanding was really pretty good. I, you know, I don't know that he's ever read the Constitution, but I do believe that the only way that the Byzantine system that the Constitution establishes of two houses of Congress plus a president with a veto power is that people have to make deals. If they're not willing to make deals and compromise, then we get unending gridlock, or as happened in 1860 Civil War. Um, so what terrifies me about Donald Trump is not that he wants to make deals. A second point, and this gets to what Akia was saying, it's simply not true that states have emulated the national government with regard to the way they organize themselves. So Keel's absolutely right. Except for Nebraska, every state is bicameral with a governor. But if you look at 48 of the 50 states, you discover that they are not remotely attached to what has been called the unitary executive. One of the things that is terrifying about Donald Trump, but also you can say about any of our presidents, um, uh, less terrifying or more terrifying, but one of the things that is true about national presidential elections is that they're winner-take-all. Whoever wins the election gets to appoint each and every cabinet official subject only to the possible restraint of 
senatorial confirmation. If you look at 48 of the 50 states, including, I believe, Connecticut, you discover that the governor really doesn't appoint the cabinet, um, that the electorate gets to choose the um, the treasurer, the lieutenant governor, um, the secretary of state, uh, which has obviously very different responsibilities from the U.S. Secretary of State. Most importantly, the Attorney General. So the Attorney General is not simply the cat's paw mm-hmm. of the President. This is the sort of thing we ought to discuss at a constitutional convention. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, it is never discussed in constitutional law courses in the finest law schools in the country because we simply ignore what might be learned from looking at the state constitutions and assume that the U.S. Constitution is just terrific. I'm assuming if we elected our attorney general, uh, uh, Jeff Sessions probably wouldn't win. Um, no. let's, let's, I want to just veer off here for a second, and this will set up our conversation with Jeffrey Frank in the third segment uh, really well. Um, one of the things, Akil, that we're, a word that we're hearing now that people didn't used to bandy about is the word emoluments. In fact, David Farenthold from The Washington Post, one of the best uh, government and political reporters in the United States, has recently been assigned to emoluments as a beat. That's what David Farenthold is spending his days uh, researching, writing, and thinking about and trying to understand uh, how they apply to this man. I have a no conflict of interest provision as president. It was many, many years old. This is for presidents because they don't want presidents getting, I, I understand, they don't want presidents getting tangled up in minutia. They want a president to run the country. So I could actually run my business. I could actually run my business and run government at the same time. I don't like the way that looks, but I would be able to do that if I wanted to. I'd be the only one that would be able to do that. You can't do that in any other capacity. But as a president, I could run the Trump Organization, great, great company, and I could run the company, the country. I'd do a very good job, but I don't want to do that. So, Akil, there are so many ways in which the Constitution may not have fully anticipated the arrival of Donald Trump. But this is an area where we're you know, people are talking a lot these days uh, about this, about the ways in which uh, his plans to isolate himself from his business are inadequate, ways in which his understanding of what he can and can't do uh, may be a little bit expansive uh, as well. I don't know. What's your, what's your take on this? Do, do we and Donald Trump have a full understanding about what the president can do besides just be president? President? Um, well, uh, one feature of the relevant constitutional text that um, the Martian um, might have um, um, focused on um, and that word emoluments, um, let me just remind people that it, it, it says um, um, uh, that um, no person holding office under the United States shall – and he's basically – somehow he's not covered because he's not an officer the way a cabin officer is. I'm not sure that that's so. So you're saying, oh, that doesn't apply to me. But here's what the rest of the sentence does say. No person holding an office of profit or trust under the United States shall without the consent of Congress – Accept any present emolument office or title or any um, of any kind whatever from any king, prince or foreign state. So in effect, the conflict of interest rules that you can't basically be getting gifts from from a, a foreign governments is ultimately 
um, uh, monitored and policed by the Congress. And, and one important thing, Sandy mentioned it and Trump himself mentioned it, the party system, his party controls both the House and the Senate. And that gives him, that makes him more like a prime minister, gives him more running room. Prime ministers, in effect, always have a legislative majority. Presidents don't. Obama hasn't had a legislative majority of both houses except for his first two years. He lost the House um, after the second year and he lost the Senate uh, after the sixth year. Um, But this is going to be a president who's got a majority of the House um, supporting his party, a majority of the Senate, most of the state um, governors, the Supreme Supreme Court will um, soon have a have a majority of Republican appointees once again, and that puts him in a pretty powerful position given the structure of our Constitution. All right, we've got to take a break here. We're going to have more uh, of Akil Reed Amar and Sandy Levinson talking about the Constitution. It's like having Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady here to talk about being a quarterback. We've got uh, two of the best uh, that there are. We're also going to talk about what happens if the president, I don't know, stops making sense. So he's doubled the size of the government Wasn't the trouble with much of our previous government size Look in his eyes See how he lies Follow the scent of his enterprise Centralizing national credit and making American credit competitive If we don't stop it, we aid and abet it I have to resign Somebody has to stand up for the South Somebody has to stand up to his mouth If there's a fire I've been putting these emoluments on my face every night and... My skin doesn't look any better. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Appearing with me in the intro are Betsy, Jonathan McPants, and Sir Ray Hardman. The part of Bill Curry was played by Vanilla Ice. You can subscribe to The Colin McEnroe Show on almost any podcast platform. On tomorrow's show, Betsy Kaplan's rockin' post-sanity pre-inaugural special. And now, back to Colin. So in the... I'm going to say 1960s. I'm not 100% sure I'm right about that, but I think I am. In the 1960s, I, re- I read them as a young guy, as a Kazakh high school student. There were these novelists, um, Alan Drury and Fletcher Neville, and they kind of specialized in, in a certain kind of Washington-based political fiction. And it was always, I mean, they books like Seven Days in May. And there was one called, I think, Night at Camp David. And Night at Camp David, the president went nuts, and they had to figure out what to do about that. Uh, and this was, I mean, I think the reason that these, this kind of fiction, Seven Days in May was sort of about a military coup in the United States, you know, generals trying to take over. Uh, there was advising consent. There were a lot of these. And I think one of the reasons that they, people started to write them was be, because we'd become a nuclear power. For the first time, um, you know, the president of the United States, by making the wrong decision, could kill a lot, if not all, of the people in the world. Uh, and so the stakes changed kind of radically. And that's something that has been looked at recently, not those novels, but this actual question itself, uh, by Jeffrey Frank, former senior editor and current contributor at The New Yorker and the author of Ike and Dick, A Portrait of a Strange Political Marriage. He's now working on a book about the Truman era. So we still have with us, by the way, Sanford Levinson, professor of law and government at the University of Texas at Austin, visiting professor of law at Harvard, and Akil Reed Amar, Sterling professor of law and political science at Yale University. I'm telling you, you. It's like we're doing a show about quarterbacks, and we have Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers on. Uh, Jeffrey Frank, you've been looking at this question of what happens, well, in that situation where for one reason or another, it seems as though the president can no longer be relied on as a matter of mental state to be the president, to, to make uh, effective decisions on behalf of the American people. So what do we know about that? Well, the, I got really interested in this question when I was working on, working on Ike and, Ike and Dick. 
And Eisenhower, Eisenhower was, had, had been sick twice before. He had a major heart attack in 1955, and, um, and then the whole cabinet sort of freaked out. What are we going to do? What if he dies? They, would, they all went. He was, he was in a hospital in Denver. Uh, John Foster Dulles was particularly interested in this because he had, he had actually known Woodrow Wilson, who had, who had, been, who had, had a stroke and, and, and had finished his term but, but, but really wasn't able to make decisions. And they were all conscious of this and what to do. And, 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 Dulles's, and Dulles's uncle had actually been forced, who had been, who had been a secretary of state, had been forced out of the cabinet by, by Mrs. Wilson. So, and, and they were really – but then this – but at least Eisenhower was, he was able to think. He was able to act. And then, it, then he had an Ileitis attack in '56, which which was a, which was a, which could have been could have been much more serious uh, as it turned out. But then in 1957, which was a really difficult time, everything was going on. The Russians had just launched Sputnik, the the little the, the immigration crisis in Little Rock had just happened, and then suddenly Eisenhower had a state dinner for the King of Morocco, and he couldn't function. He couldn't speak. He couldn't. He he mixed up words, and it turned out he'd had a he'd had a, a, a stroke, a minor stroke. Eisenhower. Refused to call it a stroke, but it was it was a stroke. And then and this time they really got worried. Um, there were meetings. There were meetings with with uh, with, with Dulles, um, with, with Bill, William Rogers, who was the Attorney General. And the, the one thing that was really interesting was they all knew each other by now. They'd been Eisenhower had been president for almost almost five years, and they all kind of for better or worse they all kind of trusted one another. Uh, Dulles was the one particularly worried, and he would uh, he actually got on the phone with. With, with with writers, what do we do? Is there anything anything to be done about this? Let's just, let's say he can't function anymore. And Rogers Rogers actually got into a correspondence with a Supreme Court justice, Felix Frankfurter, who has said, "What is there in the Constitution that lets us take over or lets us do something if the president can't can't function?" And Frank and Frankfurter said, "Well, there's nothing in the Constitution. Um, you, you you have to just sort of work it out for yourselves if it if it goes wrong." When Eichmann had his heart attack, they had something. They basically had something called with Walter Lippmann, who was a Sort of a major political columnist back then, called sort of a council of state had formed an informal one, but this time there was really nothing, and no one really knew what to do. Um, Eisenhower's chief of staff, uh, Sherman Adams, called Nixon right away and said, "He uh, said, you may be president in the next 24 hours." And um, so, the, so they, and and so what happened when was was Eisenhower got better. <laughs> it all worked out. And two months later, Eisenhower was on a plane. He he, he went to a NATO conference in Paris. It was uh, he was fine, but they. But they didn't know what was going to happen, and this sort of led to an arrangement between Eisenhower and Nixon. It was, it was an informal letter in which Eisenhower basically said to Nixon, uh, "You know, you're, you know, we, we've had this established where we were friends, even though they weren't really friends, but they were on a, they had a friendly relationship. And the, and, and if something happens, basically, you, 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 you tell me, and you're taking over. You become the acting president. But if I know that I'm okay again, I will take the job back." But this was this this was not constitutional. It was a completely informal arrangement between these between these two men. And Eisenhower was actually asked about it at a press conference. What are you, is this going to be? Some kind of musical chairs between you? Well, let's say you, you know Nixon takes over. If you don't feel you're up to the job, and you feel you're okay again, you take the job back. And how is this going to work? And Eisenhower said, Well, we're not trying to rewrite the Constitution, but we're trying to make this thing work. And and he said, On the other hand, if there is a case, if I became deranged. That would be a real problem, and uh, and that was the question I was getting to. What do we? What what happens if a president becomes deranged? The Constitution. What the Constitution was amended. Um, Congress passed passed it in 1965 and 67. It, it was it was passed by the states, and uh, under the 25th Amendment, which 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 takes care of various succession problems, but there is a problem that if the president becomes what they call incompetent, in, in a, unable to fulfill his job, 
then there's a way to get him out of office without impeachment. But it's complicated and it's long. It takes a long time. It is long. I'm going to just jump in here because we've got two legal scholars here and I've got two minutes. So I'm going to give each one 60 seconds. So, Sandy Levinson, I'll start with you. Keep in mind, we've got to leave some time for Akil. But, you know, this seems too cumber- cumbersome somehow, particularly in an era where the president could wipe out the world uh, by grabbing the nuclear football. Yeah. The key word is derangement that what terrifies me about Donald Trump is not his violation of the emoluments clause, but that he's a sociopath. The 25th Amendment, in theory, to say that, but we both know they're not going to do it. And that's the problem with the 25th Amendment. All right, Akil, uh, same question. You know, you you like a lot of these uh, amendments. You think they're great amendments. Uh, but, you know, the Constitution was framed before the president could wipe out the world. Are we nimble enough at reacting to erratic uh, and dangerous behavior? The 25th Amendment was framed after Hiroshima and True. after Dallas. Um, and it was framed in the shadow of Hiroshima and Dallas. So it's a very modern amendment dealing with just this problem. Um, the pivot point of the whole process is the vice president. If he doesn't or one day she doesn't uh, step forward, then we're in trouble. So it, it's all about Pence. If your readers are interested, two spectacular books on these issues were uh, written by one of the lawyers who actually helped draft the amendment. It was pushed by Senator Birch Bayh, uh, Evan Bayh's father, and the scholar's named John Fierick. He's the former dean of the uh, Fordham Law School. One book is called From Failing Hands, and it talks about not just Ike and Dick, but all the relationships between presidents and vice presidents going all the way back to the founding when presidents have fallen ill or died. And a follow-up book is called The 25th Amendment. They're outstanding books written by a real expert on this. But just to repeat, the pivot, the whole thing pivots on um, the vice presidency. So, Akil, uh, on, want- Mike, on Mike Pence. Yeah. I'm wondering if the sequel is going to be feeling small hands. <laughs> hand size has become kind of an issue here. Hey, this has been a great show. We th- thanks to you guys. Thanks to Akil Reed Amar and Sanford Levinson, Jeffrey Frank. What a lineup. Uh, Betsy Kaplan is the producer of this show. Kion Wolf is the one who makes it sing. Thanks to everybody who helped out. We'll be back tomorrow. Well, we, I can't even describe the show we're doing tomorrow, but we are going to take your calls as you get ready for Friday. Mr. Trump, repeat after me, I do solemnly swear nope. that I will faithfully execute I don't think so. the office of the President of the United States. We have losers. And will, to the best of my ability, I just want them to suffer. Preserve, protect, and defend I'm really rich. the Constitution. Putin. Mr. Trump, the Constitution. Putin. Constitution Putin. of the United States. You know, you're really beautiful. Oh, thanks. I say Constitution, you say Constitution. What's the difference? Congratulations, Mr. President. Yeah.